0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We think events move at a rapid pace today, but back in the late 1960s, events spiraled out as if in a whirlwind. In 1967, San Francisco experienced the summer of love. Just two summers later, we would experience men landing on the moon, Woodstock, the Manson killings, and the concert at Altamont that would mark the end of the era of peace, love, and music. It wasn't long after Altamont that racial tensions would escalate. People like George Jackson would dominate the news. Hundreds of bombings would take place on the streets of America. The SLA would kidnap Patty Hearst. Clearly, Altamont was a turning point. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Joel Selvin. He's an award-winning journalist. He's covered pop music for the San Francisco Chronicle since 1970. He's the author of the best-selling Summer of Love. He's the co-author with Sammy Hagar of the number one New York Times bestseller, Red. And it is my pleasure to welcome Joel Selvin here to talk about Altamont, the Rolling Stones, the Hells Angels, and the inside story of Rock's Darkest Day, Joel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to have you here. You begin the story really talking about what was going on with the Rolling Stones back in London and and their need for money at the time.
1: They were broke. They didn't have a penny. Uh, Keith Richards wanted to put together 5,000 pounds for a uh, down payment on a house and couldn't come up with it. Their manager, Alan Klein, had bottlenecked all their royalties and really was sitting on millions of dollars of their money and wouldn't give them a penny. So they were advised that they needed to form a company that he was not a part of and do some other business such as touring the United States. They had not been here in three years. So they put together this tour very quickly and arrived in Los Angeles to discover that in the subsequent three years, the rock scene in the United States had just exploded and they were the, among the most famous rock stars in the world. And the horizons expanded, and they began to see opportunities that they'd never had. Um, as the shows uh, on the tour took place, and they were epic shows, uh, the band began to envision themselves as uh much more successful and much larger than they could so that 's where the movie started in. Mm-hmm. They wanted to do a movie that would be out before the woodstock movie and the basil 's uh the david and albert Maisleys, uh they uh they told them they would do that, so they were going to shoot a movie and have it out by march um, long all, all along there had been this idea of doing a free concert that had been brought up by Rock Scully, the manager of the Grateful Dead. And as this tour and this movie started to take shape, this pre-concert became much more of a significant idea. That would be the final scene to this movie. That would be the crowning glory of this tour. That would be a Woodstock moment for the Rolling Stones that you know could have lofted them into places like Bigger Than the Beatles.
0: And the concert was originally supposed to take place in Golden Gate Park or someplace in and around San Francisco specifically.
1: That was Rock's idea. Rock uh, Scully dreamed up this whole idea one night in uh, London, staying up smoking weed with Keith Richards. And he told them that he could fix it for them to play Golden Gate Park. And his plan was that he would take out a permit for a concert by the Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead. And in the 24 hours before the concert announced a special guest rolling stones and then have the park wired. they could have done that but somewhere along the line the stones front office took over the permit process and as soon as that happened it was you know not it was dead meat and then they weren't going to be in golden gate park uh jagger went ahead and announced the free concert in a press conference in new york but they had no location and it wasn't until tuesday before the Saturday of the concert that they found Sears Point Raceway in Sonoma. And they made a deal with the people that were managing it to do it, but the next day, on Wednesday, the racetrack Filmways, discovered that this deal was happening, discovered that the Rolling Stones were making a movie at this concert, and didn't believe the Rolling Stones when they said the movie was just for charity. They wanted a piece of it. They wanted to distribute the movie, and that's not altogether unpeaceable. The Rolling Stones, on the other hand, totally refused to negotiate. They weren't giving up a penny. This whole thing was about money for them. So they're sitting there. They're not even counting stones, but they'd hired Melvin Belli, the flamboyant San Francisco attorney to help negotiate the deal out. And Belli gets a call from this guy who has a racetrack out near Tracy on the edge of the central Valley. That's just about out of business. And he says, do it here. Won't charge you a thing. I just want the publicity. This is Thursday, before the Saturday concert. Somebody has to look at it. They get a helicopter, and they fly Rock Scully, the debt's manager, and Michael Lang, the producer of Woodstock, what he's doing there, I don't know, Uh, and they fly them over from the debt's headquarters in Nevada to past Livermore, where this Altamont Speedway is, as they go lower down and look at the track rock looks out and he sees all this broken glass all these oil stains these piles of dead cars from demolition derbies he's wondering what the hell is he getting into and all of a sudden he hears Michael Lang speak up this is perfect we can do it here and rock thinks well this is the guy who did Woodstock maybe he knows so on Thursday afternoon like around four in the afternoon They struck the set at Sears and they moved everything 60 miles to Altamont. They were ferrying iron on helicopters. They were going on the radio asking people with trucks to volunteer. And by the time they got that stuff over there, it was dark. And the stagehands built the stage overnight in the dark. There weren't even many flashlights around
0: What concerns were there with respect to security? What was the plan for security going to be at Golden Gate or even at Sears Point? Golden Gate Park
1: would have had infrastructure, public transportation, San Francisco police. Uh, It also would have been in San Francisco, which means that the Hell's Angels, who was kind of an inevitable part of any one of these rock concerts in those days, and they'd been invited to attend. Uh, But uh, if it had taken place in San Francisco, then the San Francisco chapter would have had jurisdiction. And the San Francisco chapter were grown ups. They, they, they knew the bands and the bands knew those guys, uh, Pete Nell, Bob Roberts, uh, you know, the whole crew. Uh, and when it moved out of San Francisco, then there was no Hells Angels chapter with jurisdictions. So a lot of the problems at uh, Altamont were caused by a new chapter that was formed in San Jose earlier that year after the Angels beat the hell out of the Gypsy Jokers and dissolved the Gypsy Jokers uh, San Jose chapter. And a lot of the problems were caused actually by prospects who were uh, people who wanted to be in the club and were being considered. Um, they really were kind of like uh, indentured servants, and they were known to act out from time to time. And a lot of those problems in front of the stage were caused by prospects for the San Jose clubs.
0: Talk about how the word got out that the concert was being moved to this this odd location at Altamont.
1: Radio, babe. Radio was all over this thing in San Francisco. Uh, it, it was uh, a competition to see who could play the most Stones records, uh, who could uh, have the latest and greatest news, uh, and not just the uh, underground station, you know, uh, KSAM, which was the underground station at the time, but the AM radio stations like KFRC and KYN, they were banging it, oh, you know, in between every record uh, on a message that carried all over Northern California. A lot of the crowd that showed up at Altamont was not a San Francisco crowd, which is another issue. A lot of those uh, people came from Central Valley and they were not really schooled in rock concert in the park uh, kind of scenes. It was a tough crowd and intoxicating crowd.
0: Talk a little bit about how the stage was set up and really the problems that that would cause later on.
1: So the stage was a huge problem. It was four feet tall. And the reason it was, was that at Sonoma, the, uh, racetrack was a kind of natural bowl that led up to a big rise, and they tractored out the rise a little uh, so that it was sitting up about 12 to 15 feet. They only needed a little stage on top of that. The audience would be below them. So when they started shipping the uh, metal over to Altamont, uh, the Stones tour director, Chip Monk, directed that they build four 60-foot light towers with the metal. Not knowing that the spotlights, and indeed the spotlight operators, would never show up. So all they had left was metal for a small stage. And that stage came up to about the waist of the Hell's Angels in front of them. People could just step right up on the stage from the audience. The angels, there were 40 angels there. They were put largely just right in front of the stage to form a bulwark between the audience and this tiny stage. Uh, the audience, 300,000 people a mile away, pressing down on these people created an incredible flashpoint. And uh, the angels found themselves terrified. Uh, Their uh, response to that was to uh, lash out. And they held their ground. Uh, They were in a difficult position. One of the things I really wanted to do with this book was to give the Hell's Angels their due because they've been made out to be like paint-by-numbers villains thing. And I don't think that's fair or accurate. Those guys were put in an untenable position, and they acted just like anybody who knew them would have expected them to. By the way, not all the angels acted out. A lot of them were as appalled and gasped what happened as anybody. Uh, Terry the Tramp, who was a very close friend of the Grateful Deads uh, and uh, worked with Owsley uh, distributing LSD, uh, was just bereft and uh, destroyed Five weeks later, he committed suicide.
0: How did things begin to unravel? Uh, I don't
1: think they ever raveled. <laughs> uh, losing the Golden Gate Park permit, moving, uh, losing Sears Point, uh, not having toilets, not having concessions, not having water, not having parking, uh, a location that was remote and uh, uh, not uh, under the control of any infrastructure or police. The police didn't know about this at all out there in Contra Costa County. They found out about it on Friday morning and didn't know what the hell was happening. And when finally uh, they gathered a force, uh, the only thing they could do was sit up on a hill and watch with binoculars. You know how many arrests they made that day? They made no arrests.
0: How did things turn violent? Well,
1: the violence was a part of the scene from almost the beginning. In the book, I mentioned, uh Baron Woolman, the Rolling Stones photographer, waking up in the morning to go take his morning pee and finding that, uh, uh, standing there watching a uh, dog just rip a rabbit to death. Uh, the uh, gates were knocked down, and the crowd rushed in at dawn, uh, the uh, crowd was in a bad mood. They were uh, jostling each other and fighting for position. Uh, the Angels showed up early and took positions both behind the stage and in front of the stage, and they they, they spread out. A lot of them were helping uh, the doctors and the stagehands, and uh, but the ones in front of the stage, uh, they started beating people. That the uh, well, right during the first set, during Santana's set. Out came the pool cues.
0: And once that started, it seemed to set off a chain reaction that that was really unstoppable.
1: Nothing uh, stopped. There was a brief period in the the afternoon where the violence died down. Uh, But the angels and the crowd were in constant conflict throughout the day. And at night, after a two-hour wait, when the heat evaporated and everything turned cold and it got dark, Uh, the Stones finally came on, and during their set uh, was uh, just a constant stream of beatings. I'm listening to a 16-track mix done by Bob Matthews, the Grateful Dead he recorded that day, and I gotta tell you, uh, the band played fantastic, but there's no applause at the end of any of the um, uh, songs. All there is is screams, and you can hear the screams during the songs over the band.
0: And what was transpiring? At what point was Meredith Hunter killed?
1: Meredith Hunter was an 18-year-old black kid from uh, uh, Berkeley who came out to the concert with his girlfriend, high school senior, Patty Gretahoff. Hoff. And uh, during the Stone set, he pushed his way to the front of the stage and tried to climb up on the stage. Uh, the Stones had had problems during the third song in the set, Sympathy for the Devil, when Sonny Barger of the Oakland Hells Angels uh, saw a short circuit on one of his bikes uh, catch fire, and he charged out into the crowd to put out the fire. A lot of the other angels just followed him, not knowing what was going on, and just started laying waste to people. The Stones stopped playing, tried to get things together, and then picked up the uh, show again with Sympathy for the Devil. They finished that song and started, uh, under my Thumb." And that one fell apart, too, and they started it a second time. And at that point was when Hunter tried to push his way up on the stage. He was shoved back down by an angel, and he confronted the angel who shoved him back down. And that's when a number of angels started beating on him. They kicked him to the ground, and when he got loose, he pulled out a gun. When he pulled out the gun, a guy named Alan Passaro, a San Jose Hell's angel, was standing nearby. He pulled a knife that he had in the holster by his ankle and in a very smooth motion jumped on the back of Meredith Hunter, stabbed him in the neck and as they fell to the ground together, stabbed him four more times. Pissarro was separated from Hunter by a bunch of angels who continued to beat and stomp on Hunter. Uh, Hunter uh, Pissarro went away, didn't really know what happened, uh, and the angels finally stopped kicking him. Uh, a couple of concert goers carried his body to the stage and then backstage, and Hunter died waiting for an ambulance. He wasn't the only person that died that day. There was a kid named Leonard Kreisich, who was from Buffalo, who drowned in a bit of misadventure, probably drug-induced early in the day. And at the end of the concert, there were a couple of people who were killed. Uh, Mark Feiger and Richard Salov. Uh, They were also from the East Coast. They were spending the summer in Berkeley. Uh, Somebody stole a car, apparently high on LSD, uh, and ran it through the crowd as they were leaving up to 60 miles an hour. It crashed into a campfire and killed two people and uh, badly injured a couple of others. Uh, The cops apprehended him and had him in custody for just a little bit. He ran away. There was no evidence that there was much further uh, investigation by the police of these two deaths. Uh, And, in fact, my detective couldn't find any records of the case uh, in the um, archives anywhere. So uh, that was a real bizarre little episode that didn't get much reporting. I did find a survivor of that incident, a guy named Jim McDonald down in Santa Cruz, who was taken out of Altamont by a medevac helicopter and flatlined when he hit the emergency room? He was dead. They revived him, and it, uh, he's still alive today. And told me a story. Uh, his mother came to pick up his uh, uh, personal possessions at the hospital, and they handed her a blanket that he had had wrapped around himself when he was uh, run over, and one side of it had the outline of his body in spurts of blood and the other side had tire tracks.
0: How much of this violence was captured on film at the time?
1: Well, the Maisels, uh were filming all day, and they captured quite a bit of it. Uh, in fact, the hunter killing was filmed, uh, although the uh, cameraman didn't, wasn't aware of what he was seeing at the time. Uh, and uh, that became a piece of important evidence in the trial, because the footage very dramatically reveals Hunter pulling out his gun just before he gets stabbed. So the self defense uh defense was thoroughly portrayed. It took the cops a long time to arrest Pesaro, three months. You'd think that, you know, you could find out something a little bit faster than that without many witnesses in film. Uh and uh you know, uh the movie is a great movie, but it's not a journalistic thing. It really is about the hunter-killing, not the concert. And much of the story is, is, is kind of manipulated to that end. Um, it, it just doesn't really capture the full extent of the horror. You know, for instance, at the end of the concert, while they were breaking down and loading out, the Hells Angels built a bonfire and continued to party. And a lot of uh, concertgoers would wander down this bonfire you know, to hang out and party with the Angels and end up getting their asses kicked. And the talking of the stagehands who were working that night, they tell me they could hear the screams all night.
0: How did the bands react to what was going on?
1: Well, the bands were all horrified. Uh, the Grateful Dead showed up. They found uh, uh, that uh, Marty Ballin of the Jefferson Airplane had been beaten up by Hell's Angel during the set. They found backstage their road crew uh, head, Rex Jackson, uh, Two black eyes, having been knocked out. They found their permit guy, Bert Kenningson, had 60 stitches in his head, having taken a bunch of pool cues to the, the skull. And they decided not to play. They just went home. The stones were destroyed by the whole thing. They really went into hiding. They, they moved out of England. They, they, they changed completely. Um, the airplane, who, you know, that, the, the, that band was almost not in existence by the end of the next year.
0: Talk a little bit about how the event was reported at the time, both immediately after and in the weeks and months after. The media jumped on the Woodstock and the West story immediately. The Chronicle,
1: the Sunday paper, had a headline that said, 300,000, say it with music. And this long report about what a groovy day was out there. Oh, one guy got killed, but really it was a wonderful day. The New York Times did the same thing. Radio stations. For, uh, broadcasting how wonderful it was. It was just ridiculous. The San Francisco Chronicle on Monday had a slightly corrected version of this. Uh, crime reporter Jackson Reynolds, he talked to a couple of the cops. Uh, another writer named Michael Greed caught Jagger on the uh, telephone in his hotel suite. He said, If Jesus Christ had been there, he would have been crucified again. And uh, it took Rolling Stone magazine, which was a relatively new underground magazine at that time, and they put 11 reporters on this, turned out a 20,000-word piece in no time under the supervision of managing editor John Burks, and that was when the real story broke. Um, It not only got the, pulled the curtain back on what happened at Altamont, but that established Rolling Stone as a valid, legitimate uh, news source in this country.
0: Why was it Rolling Stone that was the only publication to really pick up on what had happened?
1: Hard to say. Uh, Some of the underground papers were aware of it and reporting on it, but of course they were fringe uh, media. Uh, Rolling Stone's coverage was excellent. It really was uh, like a uh, a Newsweek or Time magazine. Burks was a veteran of the weekly news magazine, so he knew what he was doing. Um, It happened in their backyard. Uh, A lot of the writers that worked for the magazine, uh, very importantly, Brio Marcus, had attended, Mm -hmm. had a terrible experience, and were able to convince Rolling Stone editor and John Wenner, he did not attend, uh, that he needed to do this. Um, It was kind of a brave thing, because Wenner had a very close personal relationship with Mick Jagger, uh, it just uh, folded an English version of Rolling Stone that Jagger had been a main investor in. So uh, the Rolling Stone thing was very important, and it was kind of brave. And then it paid off for them. I mean, it really established the magazine as a journalistic
0: force. And talk a little bit about what Altamont came to represent and how long it took for that to happen.
1: Well, I think, you know, that you're saying is... Uh, the whole thing about Alphamont being the end of the sixties. And, and I've heard that a lot, of course, uh, you know, it happened in December, 1969. That's kind of, uh, easy, uh, way to look at it. But, um, I'm not sure Alphamont was the end of anything. It certainly wasn't the end of the movement. It wasn't the end of the counterculture. It wasn't even the end of free concerts and meadows. Um, it was a very bad day. It was a huge loss of innocence for the rock scene. Um, and, of course, it was left four people dead and uh, in, uh, altered the course of careers of the Rolling Stones, the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, and the Hell's Angels. But, um, it, you know, its symbolism may be somewhat overrated. I'm not sure. Um, people uh, took it to heart. It was definitely the end of Peace, Love, and Flowers.
0: Joe Selvin, the book is Altamont the Rolling Stones, the Hells Angels, and the inside story of Rock's Darkest Day. Joel, I thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: I'm uh, glad to be here. Thanks a lot for asking.
0: Thank you, Joel.